Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Having a child go missing seems like the worst thing that can happen to a family. But that cannot come close to what it must be like to have two or more children mysteriously vanish. Siblings who disappear, never to be seen again, even decades later. Today on Mysteriously Listed. Number 6. Chad and Melanie Sutton. November 23rd, 1992, was what seemed to be an unremarkable school morning in the Sutton household in Inala, Queensland, Australia. Marie waved goodbye to her two children, 16-year-old Chad and 14-year-old Melanie Sutton at 8.35. Chad and Melanie would never make it to school and they would never be seen again. It would later be discovered the siblings planned to hitchhike to Perth, where their father lived. And Chad had previously tried to hitchhike to Perth, only making it as far as Toowoomba, 70 miles from their home in Inala. However, the siblings left without any clothing or money on them. This has led many to believe that Chad and Melanie did not set off to carry out these plans on the day they went missing. In 2007, a former classmate of the Suttons, Claire Snow, she spoke to the Daily Mail about how the siblings had numerous run-ins with bullies. She was also a victim of these bullies. On one occasion, she was hit in the head with a plank of wood. Claire spoke that in the months leading up to Chad and Melanie's disappearance, the siblings were physically assaulted by three bullies, with some of these attacks occurring outside their very own home. This culminated in the days before they were last seen when Chad retaliated and he lashed out at one of these bullies, hitting him with a baseball bat in self-defence. Claire believes that these bullies were capable of murdering Chad and Melanie Sutton. Rumours around the small town supported this theory. It was town gossip that these bullies had killed the Suttons and buried their remains in bush just outside of Anala. However, this area has since been cleared and redeveloped as a housing estate and no evidence was found during the construction. In April 1993, a friend of Chad's contacted the police. He claimed that Chad contacted him as many as nine times from Sydney and Adelaide 
between late November and late December of 1992. Now, it is possible that Chad may have attempted to contact him more, but this friend had moved around the time the last call received in late December. These phone calls were unable to be verified by phone records, but the space between the calls, if it was Chad who made the calls, it would indicate they were hitchhiking with numerous people or using different modes of transport. However, no one has ever come forward to say they picked up or even saw the siblings. It would support another theory, though. The theory that Chad and Melanie were left on the side of the road in a remote area and they died of dehydration. We are talking about summer in Australia. There are miles and miles of remoteness, which would easily mean that the siblings just have never been found. Police did consider Ivan Malat, the backpacker killer, for some time as a person of interest. The route Chad and Melanie would have taken would have easily taken them in the vicinity of the Balangalo State Forest, where Malat's hunting ground was. Investigators spoke to Malat, but he has never confessed to any of his crimes, so of course he denied knowledge of the fate of the siblings. Malat was thought to have kept souvenirs of his victims, but nothing of Chad and Melanie Sutton were ever found. Sadly, in 2016, Chad and Melanie's mother Marie died of a massive heart attack, never knowing what happened, but never giving up hope of seeing her children again. Their father has also passed away since their disappearance. 5. Cynthia and Jackie Leslie 1974 was a tough year for the Leslie family. Albert Leslie had been diagnosed with terminal cancer, so to be closer to the hospital where he would receive his daily treatment, the family moved to Mensa, Arizona in the June. The elder of the Leslie daughters stayed in Nevada, while 15-year-old Cynthia and 13-year-old Jackie moved with their parents, Albert and Irma, to the Desert Short Mobile Home Park. On July 31st, Cynthia and Jackie told their mother they had a babysitting job. Irma would later discover that this wasn't the case that instead the girls were going to a party at a friend's house three blocks away. Cynthia wanted to meet with a boy who she had a crush on. 
a boy who their father had asked to stay away from. Irma would last see her daughters walking down Baseline Road together. They were never seen again. When the girls had not returned home by morning, Irma reported them missing to police. In the weeks that followed, searches of the surrounding orange groves and cotton fields found no trace of Cynthia or Jackie. Interviewing the partygoers did nothing to help the investigation either. All the teenagers who were at the party were interviewed multiple times and many of the accounts were conflicting. Some claimed to have seen the girls that night at the party, while others alleged the girls never arrived. While others again said the girls were only at the party briefly before leaving. Unfortunately, Albert Leslie died only seven months after the girls disappeared. Irma continues to believe that there was no way the girls would have run away because they loved their father dearly and the three were extremely close. Irma is adamant they would have never left him while he was sick or not attend his funeral. In 1999, Irma would remarry and move to Kingsman, Arizona to be closer to her eldest daughter. She would never stop searching for Cynthia and Jackie. A popular theory on unsolved mystery and true crime forums is that the girls were taken by Ted Bundy while they were on their way to the party. Now, it's not clear if he was in Arizona at the time, but he was in the Nevada, Utah area, and the girls did look a lot like his usual victims. They were small, young, Caucasian, with dark hair parted in the middle. Another possible suspect is Elwood Leroy Lusner. He had been convicted of rape, sent to prison, but quickly paroled. While on parole, Elwood raped a 12-year-old girl in a church and was sent back to prison. Elwood was again paroled in Los Angeles, California, sometime in 1979, and was again a free man. He was arrested in November 1977 in Salisbury, Maryland, where he was charged and later convicted of the separate murders of two nine-year-old boys. Elwood would later claim he was in Maryland since 1974, but California parole records stated he didn't leave there until 1976 to avoid yet another rape charge. It is possible he spent time travelling around close enough to check in with his parole officer in California at the time of the girls' disappearances. Was this a crime of opportunity by someone passing through? Or was this a crime perpetrated by someone who knew the girls? It is possible the girls being only new to the area and they have been described as being naive. Maybe they witnessed something they shouldn't have that night. Or maybe they could have done something to fit in that reacted very badly, such as a drug overdose.
However, in my opinion, the chances of both girls overdosing, it's unlikely. It's more likely something was done to one of the girls and the other one was killed to be silenced. At the time of her disappearance, Cynthia Leslie was 5 foot 6 and 110 pounds. She had brown hair and hazel eyes. She had a dark brown mole on the outer side of her armpit. Cynthia wore prescription glasses and had pierced ears. She hated wearing her glasses and only recently gotten contact lenses just before she disappeared. These were, however, left at her home. She was last seen wearing light blue jeans and a summer shirt. If Cynthia is still alive today, she would be 61 years old. At the time of her disappearance, Jackie Leslie was 5 foot 1 and 110 pounds. She had brown hair and blue eyes. She had a mole on her right cheekbone. She had pierced ears. Jackie was last seen wearing jeans and a summer shirt. If Jackie is still alive today, she would be 59 years old. Number four, Annette and Milet Anderson. August 1st, 1974. Sisters 11-year-old Annette and 7-year-old Milet Anderson were left in their Jacksonville home alone while their mother Elizabeth went to check on a sick aunt. The girls should have only been on their own for about an hour. Their father Jack, who was a commercial fisherman, was supposed to be home by 7pm but was held up due to a faulty boat motor. Jack called home to let the girls know he would be late and he would later report that everything seemed fine. He heard the family dog barking in the background. Annette would reassure him the dog was just barking at birds in the front yard. A few minutes after this call, the girl's aunt tried calling them, but there was no answer. Jack finally arrived home by 7.20. The doors to the home were shut but not locked, with no signs of forced entry. The family's small dog, which usually had the run of the house, he was shut up in the back bedroom with a doll that Mylette would never leave the house without. The girls were nowhere to be found. Police and volunteers would search for the girls over 100 square metres in the days following their disappearance. Neighbours would report seeing a white car in the driveway between 6 and 7 that night, but nothing suspicious was seen or heard and no one saw the girls leave the house. The family lived in a secluded area with only one way in and one way out, which led police to theorise that this was a planned abduction. Eyewitnesses would come forward to report seeing the girls throughout August. Some said they saw the girls riding around in a pickup truck. Others said they saw the girls picking up bottles in the schoolyard. 
none of these sightings have ever been confirmed as being Annette and Milet. That year, several young girls between the ages of 6 and 12 went missing in the Jacksonville area. On July 21st, six-year-old Jean Scone left her grandmother's house to take a short walk to the local store. No trace of Jean has ever been found. September 12th, 12-year-old Virginia Hem had disappeared after going to a convenience store one block from her home to buy soap for her mother. Her partially clothed body was found in a shallow grave just a month later. And on October 12th, 12-year-old Rebecca Green was last seen walking home from the local store. Her skeletal remains wouldn't be found for three whole years. She would be found washed up on the shore of Little Fort George Island. Investigators don't believe that these disappearances and murders are linked to the Anderson sisters, due to significant location variances. Investigators believe the girls were killed soon after they were taken by serial killer Paul John Knowles, who was killed by police in 1974 during a failed prison escape. After his death, police found letters where Knowles referenced abducting and killing two girls that matched Annette and Milet's descriptions. He claimed he buried them in a remote area at the end of Commonwealth Avenue. This confession was taken seriously and the area searched, but no trace of the girls could be found. Regardless, Jack Anderson filed a wrongful death suit against Noel's estate for his suspected role in his daughter's disappearances. Unfortunately, both Elizabeth and Jack would die without ever learning what happened to Annette and Milet. Number three, Michael and Pamela Mayfield. Six-year-old Michael Mayfield and his five-year-old sister Pamela were kindergarten students at Betsy Ross Elementary School, which was only a short walk from their home in Houston, Texas, where they lived with their maternal grandparents. Michael was repeating kindergarten as it was thought he was too young on his first attempt. Due to the closeness of the school to their home, their mother Cynthia would often let the children make a short walk on their own. January 10th, 1985 was one of these occasions. Eyewitnesses would see the children playing at a nearby park after school and then walking towards their home before getting into a green vehicle with an unidentified man. The siblings were never seen again. The initial investigation was hampered as the family had no recent photos of the children. The pictures that were released to the media and for milk cartons in the days and weeks following the disappearances were from when Pamela was three and Michael was four. 
it wouldn't be until the November of 1985 when the children's teacher came across photos of the siblings in class. On the evening of May 12, 1985, a man contacted the Houston police and reported that the children weren't missing, but in fact living with their paternal grandparents in Los Angeles, California. The caller revealed no further information. He wouldn't say how he knew, just that he knew they were there and with whom. The police have never been able to identify the caller, only that he sounded African-American and elderly. Now, the children did have relatives in Los Angeles, and police did interview them several times, and they sat polygraphs and attended the grand jury into the disappearances but it was determined they did not have the children or know where they were. Despite this, though, the police do believe they were taken by someone they knew and trusted. At the time of his disappearance, Michael Mayfield was 3 foot and 75 pounds. He had black hair and brown eyes. He had a burn scar on his wrist and may still talk with a stutter that he had when he went missing. Michael may go by his mother's maiden name, Grant. If Michael is still alive today, he would be 41 years old. At the time of her disappearance, Pamela Mayfield was 2 foot 9 and around 55 pounds. She had black hair and brown eyes. Pamela had pierced ears and also may go by her mother's maiden name of Grant. If Pamela is still alive today, she would be 40 years old. Number 2. Sarah and Jacob Hoggle By 2014, Catherine Hoggle and Troy Turner had three children. A boy aged five, Sarah who was three, and two-year-old Jacob. They lived together in Troy's apartment in Clarksville, Maryland. Their mother Catherine had a history of paranoid schizophrenia resulting in her being involuntary committed to a mental institution a few times since the children were born, the most recent being only a year prior. Because of this, Catherine was not permitted to be alone with the children for long periods of time. On Sunday, September 7th, 2014, Troy had to work that day, so he drove Catherine and the three children to Catherine's parents' house, Roy and Randy, in Gathersburg, which was about 15 miles south from their home in Clarksville, before he headed off to work. Now, Lindsay and Randy were very active in their grandchildren's lives. They supervised Catherine with the children while Troy was at work, and they relied on them as a mode of transport as Catherine was not allowed to drive. On this day, though, Randy was at home without Lindsay. 
Catherine managed to convince Randy to allow her to drive his car to take Jacob and get pizza, leaving her other two children at home with him. They had been gone for some time when Lindsay arrived home and she panicked when she found out what happened. Lindsay and Randy would go searching for Catherine and Jacob, but they couldn't find them. Three hours after leaving, Catherine returned to her parents' home, but without pizza and without Jacob. She told them that Jacob had gone for a play date with a friend. Lindsay and Randy didn't question this, and the family went about the rest of their day, driving Catherine and her children home later that evening, so the children could go to sleep in their own beds. Troy returned home from work at around 1am to find his family asleep. He checked in on the children to find Jacob's bed empty. Now this didn't seem strange to Troy as Jacob was known to climb out of his crib most nights and into bed with his big brother. He went to bed himself thinking all was fine. Monday, September 8th, 2014, just before 6am, Catherine woke Troy to tell him that she had enrolled Sarah and Jacob into a daycare and that day would be their first day. This did not seem unusual to Troy as their eldest child was about the same age when he started daycare, so he went back to sleep. Later that day, Troy began to get concerned and asked Catherine to take him to the daycare to pick up the two children. During this drive, Catherine could not remember how to get there or the phone number or even the name of the daycare centre. At some point, their eldest child would be left with his grandparents and Troy insisted on going to the 5th District police station for help to find the children. Now Catherine's medication makes her drowsy so she insisted they first stop at the Chick-fil-A to get a soda. This was a normal request so they stopped. By the time they got back to the car Catherine had finished her soda and told Troy she was just going to run in quickly to get a refill. Troy waited in the car, but after several minutes, he went in looking for her and discovered that Catherine was gone. Once Catherine disappeared, the police got involved. 1,300 police officers and volunteers would take part in numerous searches over the years since Sarah and Jacob went missing. However, no sign of the children has ever been found. Four days after she disappeared, Catherine would be found and taken into custody. She would tell the police that she left the children with a friend whose name has never been released. This friend would be intensively interviewed a number of times by police and has since been cleared of involvement. Catherine would later change her story and state that she left her children at a local park. She even offered to take the police to show them. 
However, no sign of Sarah or Jacob or any evidence they had been there could be found. Catherine Hoggle would be charged with a misdemeanour for child neglect, but due to her extensive mental health history, she was deemed unfit to stand trial, and she was held at the Clifton T. Perkins Hospital to see if she would improve enough to stand trial. According to Maryland law, however, she could only be held for three years. As this time got closer to expire, prosecutors indicted her and upgraded the charges to two accounts of felony murder. This would increase the window she could be held for an additional five years. Police theorised Catherine murdered her children for reasons that have not been established. Troy Turner believes this to be the case as well. However, other members of Sarah and Jacob's family, they still hold out hope that the children are still alive and that Catherine did indeed give them to friends in an attempt to run away with them. As of April 2020, Catherine is still being held at Perkins, pending either changes to her competency to stand trial or December 2022, which is the date of dismissal of the felony charges. At the time of her disappearance, Sarah Hoggle was 3 foot 6 and around 40 pounds. She was biracial with brown eyes and shoulder-length brown hair. Jacob was 3 foot and around 25 pounds. He was biracial with brown eyes and a blonde afro. If Sarah and Jacob are still alive today, they would be nine and seven years old, respectively. Number one, Adam, Trevor and Mitchell O'Brien. The three O'Brien brothers, 14-year-old Adam, 11-year-old Trevor and four-year-old Mitchell had a routine that any children of separated parents would be aware of. They would spend the weekend with their dad, Gary. On November 9, 1996, the boy's mother, Diane Boland, would call Gary to let him know that Mitchell wasn't feeling very well and maybe he should stay with her that weekend but Gary insisted that Mitchell come with his brothers as usual. The boys got into Gary's 1989 grey Ford Tempo, waving goodbye to their mother. This would be the last time Diane would see her sons alive. Diane's sister would often visit her on weekends while the boys were gone to keep her company. At 8.30 that night, Gary would contact Diane to tell her that he wouldn't be returning the boys to her the following day. Not only that, but he had built a trap in his home that would explode if someone entered his residence. Diane begged her ex-husband to let her speak to the children. He told her that he would call back later. He then swore at her and disconnected the call. 
Diane's sister immediately contacted the police, who went to Gary's home, where they found the house booby-trapped. If someone were to ring the doorbell, two 100-pound propane tanks would have exploded, creating a large fireball which had enough power to destroy the entire neighbourhood. An arrest warrant was issued for Gary O'Brien for kidnapping, attempted murder and for crimes against life and health. Diane and the investigators would work tirelessly to keep this story in the public eye, including an appearance on America's Most Wanted and the Montel Williams show. This resulted in hundreds of tips coming in, but none led to the boys and Gary's whereabouts. In October 1997, an engine from a 1989 Ford Tempo would be found in the ocean off a cliff near Torbay. The serial number was checked, and it was confirmed to come from Gary's car. After extensive searches, no bodies or further evidence was found. Diane stated in interviews that Gary was known to be quite introverted and resourceful. She believed that Gary dumped the engine to divert the police into believing he had suicided and murdered the boys. She still believes the boys are alive that Gary took the boys to a religious commune that has no computers and no news. In 1998, Child Fine Canad received an anonymous tip from a woman in Thunder Bay. She identified herself as a babysitter who had taken care of the boys. She knew some details that only someone close to the family would have known, such as one of the boys' nicknames. Police were never able to locate this woman and she never contacted them again. The National Centre for Missing and Exploited Children have created multiple age progression photographs over the last 25 years with the most recent ones being released in early 2017. At the time of their disappearances, Adam wore braces. Trevor had a small scar on the back of his head. He was described as liking horseplay and telling jokes. Mitchell's hair naturally split in the centre. He had a tendency to push two fingers on the side of his nose. He was described as being shy and not quick to trust people. If the O'Brien brothers are still alive today, Adam would be 38 years old, Trevor would be 35, and Mitchell would be 28 years old. Do you have something you would like to see mysteriously listed? Do you have a particular theme that interests you? Message us on Facebook at Mysteriously Listed and on Twitter at Mysterious List. If you like what you've heard today, we would love for you to share this episode on your social media of choice. 
And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, we would appreciate it if you could leave a positive review and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Research, additional writing and hosting is by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.